This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Karen Peterson, a licensed social worker and the professional outreach and education manager at The Cradle. Karen, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you. I'm so happy to be with you. I'm wondering, first off, if you could tell us a little bit more about The Cradle, what The Cradle does, and some of the services that you offer. Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Well, The Cradle started 98 years ago. We were founded in 1923, and in those 98 years, we have been um, a child-placing agency. We've placed nearly 16,000 babies for adoption in all those years, and so our primary service is really um, providing support and adoption planning for expectant and new parents in domestic adoption, and then sort of the other streams of work that we're doing, we're preparing prospective adoptive parents in our domestic program and also through international home study. So preparing adoptive parents to adopt internationally. Um, we also have an active post-adoption program and the social workers there are providing adoption competent social work support to families at any point um, after they adopt their child. So that might be parents with a preteen, that might be um, middle school kids coming in for a support group. It might be search and reunion services with our post-adoption um, director of that, that program where people can contact us at any point in their lifespan if they're interested in learning more about their adoption or possibly doing a search for um, their birth child or their birth parents, that kind of a thing. And then another component of our services is around education. So in addition to community outreach and professional outreach that I do along with my colleague, Kikanza Harris, we also um, have an active online education program called Adoption Learning Partners. And we have a special program called Our Children where we're doing webinars. We used to be doing a lot of live work and we hope to get back to that. But currently the Our Children program is um, providing online webinars talking about parenting. So it's kind of a broad range, all centering around adoption services. Well, that's fantastic to hear. And obviously such important work that you're doing. Now, I know, you know, in being able to operate, there's a lot of laws that that govern adoption. Could you talk about some of the laws that could be governing adoption practice in Illinois, as well as, you know, thinking nationally, what are some of the common things that um, professionals such as yourself run into when they're trying to make adoptions as smoothly as possible? Sure, sure. Um, One thing that I just always like to say, no matter which group I'm speaking to, is that adoption laws vary greatly state by state. So depending what state you're in, you would certainly want to look more closely into what are the laws in that state. But I can say generally that, um, that there's usually a waiting period. It might be 24 hours, 48. In Illinois, it's 72 hours where we ask that new parents wait before they make a final legal decision and are able to sign any paperwork where they're relinquishing their parental rights to their child. Another thing that varies state by state is if that paperwork is final and irrevocable at the time of signature. In Illinois, it is a final decision, final and irrevocable. Um, Some states, though, have a 10-day or 20-day or even a 30-day revocation period where the birth parent can change their mind and um, kind of reverse that paperwork that they completed. Um, Again, in Illinois, it's a final and irrevocable decision. Um, So we certainly work very closely with birth parents so that they can be sure 
100% sure that they're making the decision that they think is right and best for them and for their child. Got it. Thank you so much for going through that with us. I think it's always helpful to have that front of mind in going into any of these discussions. Uh, right. give, given that our audience is a, a lot of medical professionals and people that work in healthcare settings, what do you think would be helpful for those medical professionals to know about the adoption process? Oh, I'm so glad you asked me that question. Um, I spend a lot of my time speaking with medical professionals, primarily in hospitals, so physicians, OBs, um, emergency medical staff, social workers, nurses, and some of the things that I always want to make sure I share with them. Um, first and foremost, that this is a very, very difficult decision. Um, it's difficult to even bring up the topic of adoption. So when I might be in a health center, um, you know, a clinic of some kind, I'm always talking with those staff um, members about how difficult it is for a patient to bring up the topic of adoption, that she might be interested in learning more about it. Um, and so I really encourage professionals to raise that topic, whether they're doing options counseling um, or providing obstetric care, um, to ask that patient, is adoption something she had considered or might like to learn more about or hear more about? So that's one of the first things is just how tough it is to bring up the topic and also just how difficult it is to ultimately choose to place one's child for adoption. We are talking about voluntary relinquishment, uh, voluntary adoption, and that takes a lot of strength, takes a lot of conviction. It's something that it's very normal for our clients to vacillate on that decision. In fact, one thing we always say is that during a pregnancy, a woman or a couple can make an adoption plan, but it's only after a baby is born that they can work on making that final adoption decision. Um, so I, I can say more about that, but uh, we call it a change of heart when birth parents decide to parent. And that might happen in as much as 20% of cases where a woman might go into her delivery experience with an adoption plan in place. And sometime either during her hospital stay or in the days and weeks following um, giving birth to her child, she will decide to parent her baby. Um, so that's one thing that's really important for professionals to know. It's really important for agencies to prepare prospective adoptive parents to know about that um, so that people can be as prepared as possible. And as that relates to medical care in the hospital, um, it's also the way that ties in is when a professional sees in the electronic medical record that the patient has an adoption plan in place, for that professional to remember that means she's made a plan, but that she has not necessarily made that final decision. And I think that's important to keep in mind when providing care and checking in on the patient. Um, so that's one of the things I think is really important. Um, other things are just realizing how available adoption is for prospective adoptive parents. Um, and it was in 2016 that we are now able in all 50 states, LGBTQ families are able to adopt. And um, so we really wanna be as welcoming and inclusive of prospective adoptive parents. I think that's sometimes a, a gray area where people are less clear if that's the case. Um, and another thing I, I really wanna make sure people know about is open adoption, to know that the research really supports that open adoption does not confuse kids and in fact, um, has really shown with longitudinal studies to be very good for kids. Um, they're not confused by it. 
and they have less questions about their adoption story when they have openness, which means a relationship or access to a relationship with their birth family. So it's kind of a long answer, but those are some of the things I always want to make sure I touch on when talking with medical professionals. Those are some great points. And obviously with so many different scenarios that occur um, within the adoption process, the planning, and then making that final decision, um, it's great to hear that there um, are so many different ways that healthcare providers can support the patients regardless of what they decide. Right, right. I'm wondering, you know, what are patients looking for from providers when they are facing an unplanned pregnancy or they want to learn more about the options of adoption and, you know, are just really in that beginning phase? Right, right. No, that's a great question. Um, We've actually done research on this at the cradle and other research that supports our findings really show us that what um, pregnant women are looking for when they're considering alternatives to parenting they are looking for providers that are going to provide unbiased information about all of their options where they can feel unconditional positive regard, they can feel support, where there's no agenda for her decision, no pressure around any of her options. Um, You know, we know that those are the things that are really important to them. We know they're also looking for um, reputable referrals from their provider. So, and in when I say reputable refer um, referrals, it's that the referral sources would also pr- have that unbiased information and support available to the patient. Um, so, those are I would say some of the most important things to be mindful of. Other things um, that we know sometimes a patient might ask a physician for might be if they are aware of a family who might be interested in adopting a baby. Um, I know from doing grand rounds with many, many physicians over the years that almost all of them have some kind of a story where a patient they were working with um, shared and confided that they were thinking about adoption and asked if the physician might know of a family. And um, what we, you know, there's a lot of stories out there, but what we like to suggest for best practices really comes from the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists where they did write an opinion paper um, that was reaffirmed in 2015, where they really outlined some of the things that I just mentioned in terms of providing unbiased and accurate information, being aware of local resources, and then referring to adoption agencies um, that would be in their local community that they feel are reputable. And then the final kind of piece in that recommendation is one that I, I like to quote because I think they say it better than I can, And um, the piece from that recommendation says that because of ethical issues related to undue influence, competing obligations, lack of expertise, physicians should not serve as brokers of adoptions. And what they're talking about there is that opportunity that some physicians may find themselves in um, a position, I should say, to refer um, a prospective adoptive couple or parent to one of their pregnant clients or patients. So that's that's not considered best practices, really making a referral to um, a licensed not-for-profit child placing agency would really be the best course of action, um, you know, when a patient might be asking for that kind of direction from their, from their physician. 
That makes a lot of sense. It's really helpful because as you mentioned, I know, you know, that's something that does come up from time to time for the physicians and nurses that are working closely with those patients. And I wanted to go back to quickly um, a topic that you touched on already of open adoptions. Are most adoptions open these days or what percentage, you know, are, are trending in that direction? And do you have any more thoughts on, you know, um, or, or statistics that you can share about that for our listeners? Sure. Well, I, I really appreciate you asking about this as well, because I think there can be a lot of confusion about what open adoption is and what it isn't. Um, and in all of our adoptive parent preparation and education programming, we really want to stress um, first what it isn't, but it's not co-parenting. Um, it's not like a joint parenting agreement. It really is more about maintaining a connection between a birth child and the birth parent or birth parents. Um, so this relationship, of course, involves the adoptive family, and the relationship will always center on the child. And kind of the key components that define what is an open adoption, it simply means that you will share identifying information, and you do make some kind of an arrangement or commitment to get together, if possible, in person. Um, but we know that everything from the pandemic that's hit us and pre-pandemic, just life circumstances. People can move, they might have a job transfer, they might not live in the same area that they once did, where maybe the birth family was within and out a car ride. Um, but there's still many, many ways to maintain an open adoption. Uh, today, of course, it could just be with Zoom calls and FaceTime and emails. Um, Back in the day, I've, I've been working in adoption for almost 27 years. And back when I was working with adoptive families, um, the way these connections were also maintained and strengthened was through a letter and picture exchange. Well, today, people will sometimes make a private uh, website where they can share pictures and videos and updates with um, birth families. So just maintaining that that connection is really the, the center of um how, what openness looks like. And then in terms of how often are we seeing open adoptions, the vast majority of domestic adoptions today in the United States are open. Um, there certainly still are some people who are less comfortable with that, and they may be uh, working with a private attorney trying to accomplish more of a closed adoption. And, um, you know, it's hard. It is hard to know the percentages of that because they're not tracked sort of by the CDC. I mean, private adoptions that happen around the country, it's hard to capture that exact number, but we do know that the majority of adoptions today um, have some degree of openness and contact. And the main reason that is, is because research is supporting that it's good for kids. So agencies like the Cradle that has been around almost 100 years, decades ago, the idea of openness wasn't, wasn't a notion and as in the 90s and early 90s, mid-90s, as more research was coming up and um, more longitudinal studies were coming into place and agencies kind of sprinkled around the country were starting to have adoptive families and birth families meet one another, it really just blossomed from there. And um, it was just a wonderful time in adoption to have, it was like a, a paradigm shift in practice to have birth family involved in picking the family, selecting the family who would adopt their child, and then getting to meet that family and ultimately getting to have an opportunity, you know, to stay connected in an authentic relationship, not facilitated by an agency, but directly between the two families. So 
that's been, um, like I said, a major shift and really one for the, for the better from a child welfare perspective. Kids are really doing well in this. That's great to hear. And as you mentioned, you know, the kids are the most important thing. Um, so knowing that they have those opportunities and typically are doing really well, and especially like you said, e- being able to use technology to stay connected in many different ways, um, you know, exactly. is just great to hear. I, as we wrap up our conversation, I, I do have one more question for you. After sure. placing a child up for adoption, can birth parents change their minds and, and get that baby back? You know, that's a great question. And we, we hear that all the time. And for the people who don't ask us that, we know they're wondering about it. So I'm glad that you asked about it. Um, I will start my response by saying, just like the um, laws that govern adoption and relinquishments in each state being very specific state by state, that's also the case when it comes to um, kind of reversing an adoption decision. And we really don't see it sort of in the made-for-TV movie scenario where a child has been placed for years and then um, there's a reversal. It's more when a state has that revocation period that might be 10 days, might be 20 days or 30 days. Within that window, birth parents are able to change their mind. And again, the adoptive family should be very well prepared of that legal risk excuse me, that they're taking on. Once that window has closed in those states, the 10 days, the 30 days, um, those states become like the states that I mentioned, like Illinois, where the decision is final and irrevocable. Once that that window closes, it becomes almost impossible to undo or reverse an adoption. And, um, you know, I know a lot of adoptive parents have a lot of anxiety around that, but when they consult with an attorney in their state and learn more about the security in domestic adoption, um, you know, we usually see anxiety really come down, dial down from that place. Um, but I do want to also mention that there are two ways um, in Illinois, and this is the case, I think, in most states, but I can speak specifically for Illinois law, where birth parents do have an opportunity to petition the court to ask for their decision to be reversed if they're able to establish that there was either fraud or duress in their adoption planning experience. Fraud meaning some gross misrepresentation of some aspect of the adoption and duress, of course, meaning some aspect of pressure that they experienced either from an attorney or a social worker from the adoption agency. So that's a very rare occurrence when a birth parent comes to court with that um, grievance and where an adoption can be overturned. But I always want to mention that that avenue is available to birth parents if they think they've had that experience um, and the court is able to consider that in sort of a case-by-case situation. Uh, The cradle has never been involved with a case like that, but um, I think it's important to note that that opportunity is there for them if they if they did feel they had that kind of an experience. That makes a lot of sense. Karen, thank you so much for being here with us today. This has been a really great discussion and I look forward to connecting with you again in the future. Well, thank you for having me, Laura. It's been really nice speaking with you.